The following lecture was delivered at the 10th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Dove Greenberg will now present a lecture entitled, How Five Powerful Words Can Put You on the Path to Happiness. We're going to use this story, we'll develop it throughout our time together to hopefully develop some very important and relevant points in terms of life. One of the great prophets that the Jewish people had, his name was Elisha. And Elisha would travel through the ancient land of Israel to inspire, to talk, to share the word of God comes to a certain town and he encounters a woman in the book of the prophets her name is Isha HaShunamit the Shunamiite woman and she sees a traveling person and she says why don't you come to our home my husband and myself would be happy to have you as a guest, have dinner, sleep this was before uh, you know, Motel 6 and so forth he accepts the invitation. Very interesting. The next morning, he sleeps over. The next morning, she tells her husband, this guy who slept here last night, we don't know who it is, but he's a man of God. He's a holy person. And she tells him, next time you're in town, come to this home. You're always welcome. Alicia travels. A few months later, he's back. He's invited again. When he leaves, the wife goes to the husband and says, this guy is so holy, I want to ask you, my dear husband, build a little extension of the home for him. Build a loft or some little cottage connected to the house. Whenever he comes by, he'll have a private space to pray, to study. Give him his own little private space. And the husband agreed, and he built that. And for years, the Tanakh tells us, whenever Elisha traveled through this town, he would stay there. The day arrives when Elisha tells her, I'm not coming through the city anymore. I'm, I have other business elsewhere. But you were so kind to me over the years. I want to give you a special bracha, a special blessing. Tell me what it is you need. A blessing or I want to let you know I have connections with the government, with the king. Tell me what it is you want and I'll give it to you. And she responds with a phrase that becomes famous across Jewish history, especially in Israel, a Hebrew phrase. She says, I don't need any special blessings. I don't need special connections. Don't do me any favors. Besoch ami ani yoshevet. I'm a regular citizen. Don't do me any favors. I did a mitzvah, hospitality, but I'm fine. Elisha doesn't know what to do. He says, okay. She leaves. He calls his assistant. His assistant, the name was Gechazi. And he says, Gechazi, what could we do for this special woman? She says she needs nothing. So Gechazi looks at Alicia and says, Alicia, she's been married for many, many years. She doesn't have a child. <laughs> the greatest gift you can give her is give her a blessing. You're a novi, you're a prophet. 
give her a blessing for a child. That will be the greatest thing for her. So Alicia says, good idea, call her. Gechazi goes, calls her and she comes. And Alicia tells her, I want to tell you that in a year from now you're going to have a child. And she says, please don't make a mockery out of me. Don't start giving me these blessings. And Alicia says, I'm telling you this is what's going to happen. A year later, she gives birth to a beautiful baby boy. So far, it's a nice story in the prophets, right? Uh, Faith in God is affirmed. Everything's wonderful. That's what we would suspect the ending would be. But if you're listening a bit closely, we all know this is not a Jewish story. Jewish stories don't end happily ever after. That is not the tales we tell. Right? There was this uh, fellow, his name was Mendel. He hadn't seen his friend for a long time, a few years. They encounter each other on the street. The friend uh, says, hey, I'm in a rush. It's great to see you, but just in one word, how are you doing? So Mendel says, in one word, good. So his friend says, okay, fine, in two words. So he says, in two words, not good. (laughs) That's a Jewish story, right? It's good, but then there's the crisis. So the story doesn't end there. She has a child, wonderful. The next verse. The next verse is a few years later. It's a hot day somewhere in Israel, very hot day. And this child now is maybe 10, 11. And he goes out to visit his father who's doing the harvesting or the planting in some of the fields or vineyards. Child runs out. And it's a sweltering day. And the child gets dehydrated. His head begins to pound. He's dizzy. And he looks at his father when he meets his father in the field, barely standing. And he says, Reishi, Reishi, my head, my head. His father sees the kid's sick, not feeling well. He calls an assistant and says, bring him home to his mother. Something's wrong. Travels back with the kid to his mother and the kid's situation deteriorates. The kid's unconscious. The servant gives the child to the mother. The mother's holding the child, trying to take care of the child. And the greatest possible tragedy hits. The child dies in the mother's arms. He dies. Mess. The mother immediately takes the child, puts the child down in in a room, shuts the door. She calls some of the house help and says, immediately prepare for me the donkey I'm going to travel to Elisha. I know where he is. He's at Harha Carmel, Mount Carmel. Prepare transportation for me. I'm leaving. And in a tizzy, she is preparing for her travel to the prophet. The husband comes home. The husband is unaware of what happened. He has no idea. And he sees his wife running around, busy preparing for an unplanned journey. He looks at her and he says, what's going on? Why are you rushing somewhere? Lo Shabbat hayom, lo Chodesh. It's not Arab Shabbos. It's not Rosh Chodesh. Where are you running? What's, what's going on? Listen closely. Vatoimer, and she tells him, Shalom. All is well. Shalom. All is just wholesome. Vatoimer, Shalom. It's a crazy statement. The greatest tragedy just befell her and her husband. 
Not only does she not tell her husband what happened, when her husband says, what's going on? Vatoymer shalom, all is well. Wholesome. What kind of crazy response is that? And she leaves the home, and she travels, and she goes to Har HaKarmel. She's traveling. As she's approaching the home of Elisha, Elisha peers out through the window. And he sees from far away this woman, the Isha Hashunamis, who he knows. And in one moment, he can detect that something horrible has happened. He has a sense that something is wrong. And he calls that same assistant, Gehazi. He says, Gehazi, hurry up. And Gehazi rushes over. And he says, I want you to run out to her. Intercept her, run. And I want you to ask her three questions. Three questions are, Hashalom lach, are you okay? Question one, Hashalom lach, are you okay? Hashalom le'yishech, is your husband okay? Hashalom la'yolad, how is that child? Is that child okay? Three questions, are you okay? Is your husband okay? Is your child okay? And Gehazi rushes out and he runs and he runs and he intercepts her and she stops. And he asks those three questions. Hashalim lach, how are you? Hashalim li'isheh, how's your husband? How's your child? Vatoimer, and she says, what does she say? Shalom. All is swimmingly well. Perfect. Wholesome. Shalom. Bizarre. Now you might think she's delusional. You can read the text. You say, this is a delusional. She went crazy. It's not a great tragedy. She's not well. She's but the text makes it very clear that is not what is happening. And she has a strategy, there's a plan here, there's intent, there's purpose. Because she rushes by Gehazi, she runs into the home of the prophet, she opens up the door, and the second she encounters Elisha, she falls to the floor and she starts to weep and she tells him, I never asked for a blessing. You came to me and you said, what do you need? And I said, but I did nothing, all is well. And you nudged, and you forced this blessing upon me. And then you gave me this blessing with a child. And now this child is gone. Elisha, this is your responsibility. You got me into this mess. You're a man of God. Go to God and work it out with him. All I know is, I want my child back. This is on you. And the Talmud actually analyzes the text the Talmud says Elisha was checkmated. He knew this was a powerful argument. And we have one of the great miracles in the prophets. Elisha rushes back to the room where this child was dead. And in vivid detail he goes and he breathes life back into the child. The child is brought back to life. One of the great miracles of Tanakh. And the child grows up to be a wonderful person. That's the story in the Bible, in the Torah. What's the question? The key question is, what is the relevance of the story? What is the Torah telling us? Why is it in the prophets? Is it telling us that God could do a miracle? We already know that. It's not telling us that we can bring people back who are not alive. I mean, that's not in our capacity. So what's the message of the story? The first Chabad Rebbe, Shneir Zalman of Liadi, explains it beautifully, psychologically and powerfully, and how it becomes relevant to a person. 
And as we'll explain what he says, it will become more and more clear. In the beginning, it will be a bit lofty, but hopefully it will become more concrete as we move along. He says the story is not a story about some ancient woman in some ancient land. Certainly that's the biblical story. But the story is a story of every individual, of every soul. It's a story of a person's life. When a person is younger, a person has dreams about their own future, about the future of their relationship, future of their children. People have wonderful dreams about a bright future, a happy future. And very often as life goes on, a person says, my dream is not possible, my dream is dead. The future I wish to have, the future I thought I would have cannot be, it is gone. The relationship I thought I would have, it's not happening. The person I wanted to be, not happening, gone. And the person's dream dies, as it were. The person gives up. Says the Alter Rebbe that the powerful notion of this story is a person should never say that the future that I dreamed for, the happy future I want for myself, for my spouse, a child, a family, it's gone and I can never get it back. What a person needs in life is an optimism and a faith in God and a positive energy. And when a person has that kind of perspective, when a person could say, it's going to be good. I'm going to work to make this situation to the best of my ability a success, happiness, life, that is when God is able to step in and create miracles and blessings in the work that we do. And in fact, when you look into the commentary on this story, Mitzvah David and Ralbag, Meshachachma, some of the classic commentaries, they point out that she never said one bad word. She never allowed one bad word to escape her mouth, this woman, the Isha Shunamas, because she knew that this was a man of God, it was a special situation, and she felt that if she has the faith in God and does everything she could to bring a blessing down, then a blessing will happen. But she felt that if she tells her husband what had happened, or Gehazi, the assistant, they would both dissuade her. They would say, you're crazy, it's lost, it's gone forever, you're not going to Elisha, stop trying to make the situation better, it's finished. But in her heart, she knew that there was somehow hope. She didn't know how. But she felt that if she has faith and she does whatever she could do, somehow a blessing was going to be there. And she never let a bad thing escape her mouth. How is it? Shalom. How are you? Good. Your child, good. She said good things. She thought positive things. And she acted on it. And because of that, in the merit of that, she was blessed. So the beginning of the story, we begin to see a general picture. The notion that thinking positively, expressing positive thoughts, having faith is a very powerful thing. And sometimes that itself is the key to blessings and miracles. But I want to now illustrate on a very tangible way, bring it down another level, to demonstrate how powerful our thought process is. And I'm going to say a statement that might sound like a new age statement. You know, like, oh, sure, that's extreme. That's, uh... 
And I want to illustrate with this story in Jewish teaching how a transformative idea in Jewish thought and in a person's life. The statement, and I'll repeat the statement because it will sound wild. One of the most consequential questions a person could ask in life is, what kind of perspective do I have when it comes to viewing reality? Because often in life, most of the time, the way we perceive reality will change reality. Our perception of reality determines our emotional response to reality in most cases in life. So our viewpoint becomes critical. You look at this story in the Tanakh, in Hebrew the word hashalom lach, are you okay? It means how are you? But the word hashalom also means many things. It means hashalom lach, do you have a positive perspective? Do you have a wholesome viewpoint on reality? What the Prophet was asking, three questions, hashalom lach, how do you view reality? Hashalom lach, how do you, vatimir shalom, she says I have a positive view. Hashalom le'isheh, how do you view your relationship, your spouse, your husband? Vatoymer shalom, positively. Hashalom, how do you view your children? Positive. Look at these three components. So here's a for instance. A couple goes on a honeymoon. And instead of going to a beautiful hotel, they decide they're going to go to some forest and stay in a cabin. Do something uh, adventurous. Okay. First night of the honeymoon, they're far into the forest, a wooden cabin. About two in the morning, a, wood, a family of woodpeckers, a mishpacha, comes and begins to eat the roof. Woodpeckers make a lot of noise. First there's a minion, then there's two minions. It's loud, they can't sleep. Can't sleep the whole night. The next day, the same thing happens. Not sleeping. Three nights in a row. Honeymoon, no sleep. Miserable, terrible. So you could look at it, a fight can break out, stupid idea, waste of money, terrible. Not a good way to start. Now this story actually happened to a couple. They had this experience. On the way back, the third day, they decided that this experience was a wonderful thing. It was a successful event. It was just wonderful. That's what they decided. So they said the only thing left we need to do is figure out why it was wonderful. It's already, we're going to decide it's wonderful. Now we need to figure out why. And they figured out. They, on the way back from this honeymoon, created something that we all know of. They created a cartoon, Woody Woodpecker. This couple was Walter and Grace Lance. And on the way back from the honeymoon, they created their first episode. She was the illustrator, she was the voice. Walter was the illustrator. And they had this idea of Woody Woodpecker from that evening in that cabin. Fifty years later on their wedding anniversary, they said those were the best three nights they had. Here's the question. Simple question. When they couldn't sleep the first night, can't sleep, was that event good or bad? Was it a good thing or a bad thing? Anybody else? You say bad. Anybody else? Good. Know what the real answer is? You know, you're both right. The event wasn't good or bad, you know? know what? It depends on the perspective. It depends on the person in the cabin. If you're in the cabin and you say it was bad, then it becomes bad. 
But if you're in the cabin and you say it is good, then it becomes good. The event itself is neutral. If you don't sleep and your honeymoon is wrecked, it's not wrecked. It depends what you do with that experience. If you say this was a bad experience and you're a nudge and you get into a fight the next day and you're cranky, then it really is bad. It becomes bad. But if you say we didn't sleep for three nights and we have a headache, I'm a chaya, this is wonderful, it's a success. You're not delusional. Then you have the power to actually make it a success. In their case, it was fame and wealth and a livelihood and meaning and joy to others. Now, in most cases in life, not in every case, in most cases in life, that's exactly how it works. The event itself is neutral. It depends on the person and our perspective and our thought process when we look at the event. Our mind has the power to determine if the event will be good or bad. And it has the power to determine our emotional response. Very powerful. So these are the five words, the five Yiddish words that will run with for the next few minutes. Five Yiddish words. Tracht gut. Tracht gut means think positively, think good. Vet sein gut. Will be positive. Think positive, will be positive. I want to tell you something. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, they, they have uh, over 30 books of the letters that he has written to people over, over the decades. 30, 30 volumes, over 30 volumes. And what's fascinating about this uh, collection of letters over about 50 years is that you have an array of every kind of character in there. Politicians, athletes, artists, rabbis, rebels, nudges, uh, uh, every. Very interesting. So you have the viewpoint and questions and answers, every kind of Jew, engaged, religious, secular. And I looked through the topic of happiness and trouble. You can look through the letters to see all the letters that came in about sadness and being happy and troubles in life. So obviously, first part of the response was addressing the particular issue, the particular crisis with practical advice. But the phrase that appears more than any other in that, those 30 books is this phrase, no other phrase in the Rebbe's letters appears remotely as often as those five words. Think positively, and it will be positive. So, on a spiritual level, in terms of faith, the faith itself, having faith in God, has the power to bring miracles into the world. Uh, we say in Psalms, Hashem, the one who has faith in Hashem, chesed venu, blessings of God's kindness will surround them. And in the Zohar it says, Hashem, somebody who has faith in God, even if they're undeserving, they're not holy, but in the power of faith itself, they'll be encompassed, surrounded with those kinds of blessings. So on one level it works in terms of faith and blessings from God. But on a psychological level, on a practical level, just in terms of every day, our mind, thinking at it, looking at an event and saying, oh wow, positive, changes reality in so many cases. Uh, we say on Shabbat, a psalm that David said, it's a famous psalm, the Jews actually said it whenever they went to the temple in, the, in ancient Israel. David wrote one of the psalms, and the psalms he says, and this will be familiar for, uh, for whoever says the Shabbat uh, davening in the morning, 
The psalm is, Samachti bo'im rimli. David says, I was happy when people told me, Beis Hashem neilich, let's go to the house of God. Let's go to the temple. What's the psalm? David says, I was happy, I was overjoyed when people said, let's go to the house of God. The commentaries ask the obvious question. The house of God, the Beis Hamikdash, was not built by David. Solomon built it. So what does David mean? I was happy when people told me, let's go to the house of God, to the Beis Hamikdash. It wasn't built. King Solomon, his son, Shleim HaMelech, built it. So the Yalkut Shemaini answers something very powerful. The Yalkut Shemaini says that the people who told David, let's go to the temple, were not his friends. They were people who couldn't stand David. David had enemies. People didn't like him. Now, everybody knew that David wanted to build the temple, and God told him no. So people figured, how do we get David where it hurts? How do we really get him? They would see him riding, and they would say, hey, David, let's go to the Bet HaMikdash. Let's go to the house of God. And that would just rub in the fact that you're not worthy, and God told you no. So they said it to get David angry. So the Yalkut Shemoni says, if so, the Psalms should read, David said, I was upset, or I became angry or sad, when people reminded me, that I couldn't, what didn't merit to build God's home. That would make sense. And we know that uh, Psalms doesn't tell us things that are not true, obviously. When David sins, it's in there. Everything's in there. Uh, you can't, if David were to be upset, it would say he was upset. But David says, I was happy when I was emotional. He says, I was happy when people essentially were making fun of me. How? Why? So the Yalka Shemaini says, because when people told that to David, David stopped for a moment. He heard the insult, and then he thought, wow, these guys are lowlifes. Imagine, you know, a Jew taunting the king who was anointed by God. It's not a high-level Jew, not a sophisticated creature. But David would stop for a moment, and he would think, look at these creatures that are not elevated. What's on their mind? They're thinking about God's house. They're thinking about the Beit HaMikdash. Wow, Jews are wonderful. Even the lowlifes, they think about God's house. And then he, would, he was happy. Because he realized how special the Jewish people were. So normally we think, oh, I'm in a good mood, I'm in a bad mood. I'm in a, uh, somebody insulted me. What Yalkut Shemani is saying is that our emotions are determined by the way we view the words. Somebody could tell us something, but if our mind, we hear it differently, if we understand it differently, then our emotional response is differently. Somebody can tell tell us something, if we view it as an insult, then we genuinely become sad. But we also could view it as something positive. And if we actually think, figure out some way to put a positive viewpoint on it, then our emotions change. Which means that we are much more in control of our emotions, of our freedom, of our happiness, because the way we interpret what is being said to us, and the way we view things changes. Reality itself. There's a story of uh, Zusha and Elimelech, two uh, saintly brothers. So what, what they, would, they were great scholars, but what they would do sometimes is uh, disguise themselves as simple people, and they would go to some other city where no one knew them. And when they weren't recognized, they would be treated as simple people, and then they would try to help out, do whatever they could do teaching, helping. So they come to one city, they look like poor, unknown people. And there were some other 
beggars in that area that didn't like competition. They figured, oh, now there are new people here. This is competition, not good. They told the authorities in the town that these two people, criminals, something, and they had them both arrested. So Zusha and Elimelech, these two saintly brothers, are thrown into a prison. Three, four in the morning, Zusha looks at Elimelech, Elimelech is crying. So Zusha tells Elimelech, where's your faith? Where's your simcha? Why are you crying because we're in prison? What kind of response is that? So he tells his brother, he says, I'm not crying because I'm afraid. I'm crying because I'm sad. Because in a few hours the sun is going to rise, two, three hours. And the mitzvah to connect to God is to wrap tefillin and pray. And tomorrow is going to be the first weekday since my bar mitzvah where I'm not going to be able to connect to God. I'm not going to be able to wrap tefillin and pray because there was a bucket in the center of this prison that was uh, the bathroom. That's the good old prisons and these were the real prisons. So it's going to be the first time. I'm upset because I'm missing that relationship with Hashem and those and the prayers. So Zusha tells him, how do you know you can't pray in, the, in a bathroom environment? So he says, what do you mean? It's God's will. It says in the code of Jewish law, it's Shulchan Aruch, it's so Zusha tells him, the same way you connect to God every day, through following His will by praying and wrapping tefillin, tomorrow you'll also connect to God by following His will, by not praying and not wrapping tefillin. They're connecting, it's a different connection. I mean, don't try this at home, but in that environment, it's... Uh... So Elimelech is thinking, he says, I didn't think of it that way, you're right, I'm following... He says, that's an interesting thought. So I connect to God in a new kind of way tomorrow. He's overjoyed. He starts to dance. He jumps 3 a.m. in the prison. The two brothers are dancing. The chief Kazak wakes up and he's very impressed with the Jews. He says, you guys are thrown into prison. Five hours later, it's a bar mitzvah already. You're celebrating, you're dancing. Optimism, joy, very impressive. He's inspired by this and he joins the dance. So you have the two saintly brothers and the chief thug dancing. The smaller thugs look, they see their leaders dancing, they all join. So, 4 a.m., you have 50 prisoners all dancing, it's like Simchat Torah. You know, it's very uh, great ruckus, it's happy. The warden wakes up, he hears a celebration, happiness, joy, he never heard this before in a prison. He comes rushing in and he tells people to stop, he's ignored, everybody's having a blast. So he pulls one of the thugs over. He says, you better tell me right now what's going on. Who started this riot? And he says, whoa, 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 we're all innocent. It's the Jews. The Jews came. They created havoc. So he says, how did the Jews do this? You guys are, every one of you are larger than them, stronger than them. These are the two smallest creatures here. How did they do this? So he says, look, these guys are scholars. I couldn't follow their logic. It was a bit sublime. But what I could tell you is, the bucket in the center of the room created a new relationship with the creator of the cosmos. I don't know how the bucket did that, but the bucket created a relationship with the infinite one in a whole new level. That's what... So the warden hears this and he says, all right. He runs into the center of the room and he pulls out the bucket. He's going to... So Zusha turns to Elimelech and says, Shachris, wrapped villain, fast. So what, how, what, here what Jewish law is saying is Judaism is not suggesting in these stories and this concept of thinking positive that we deny reality. Sometimes you can be in a reality where there's noxious fumes, 
a prison environment. You can be in an environment where according to Jewish law, you don't put on tefillin. There's tragedy in life. There are problems in life. There's no question about that. So Judaism doesn't say, look at a problem and say, oh, it's wonderful. That's delusional. What, what Torah is suggesting is to look at every situation in the most positive light possible. See if there's a way to celebrate, to be optimistic, to be positive, even in a challenging moment. So Elimelech over here, in this environment, first thought, okay, it's a bad day, a, a difficulty in my life, my relationship with God is on pause, happiness is over. What Zusha was arguing was, think of it differently. How could you find some positive viewpoint even in this reality that we don't want? We don't want to remain in prison. I'm not saying, Zusha wasn't saying prison is good, but could you look at a dark moment in life and find a deeper relationship there? God still exists. This is what I'm going through today. There's a relationship with God even at this moment. How could I celebrate at this moment somehow? And even as I do, pray to God that I will be able to daven, that I will be freed from prison. And in this beautiful story, which is simple but profound, it was the optimism and the joy itself that caused what was negative to be removed. When we view things positively, when we respond in that way, then what is negative in our environment is removed often because of that perspective, because of that celebration. You put it very simply. You look out on the ocean, a big lake, you see a sailboat. Right? You've all seen sailboats. What determines the direction of a sailboat? The wind? The way the wind is moving? Or the position of the sails? Right. How do you know the sails? Because you can see on one lake, one sailboat moving north and one south. The same exact wind. The wind makes no difference. It's the direction of the sail that moves the ship, the sailboat. In life, we're on an ocean, so to speak. There are storms. There are different winds. We are the captain, and the thoughts are the sails. Our thoughts are the sails. You can have one event. Two people view them differently. The sails of our mind will determine what harbor we will end up on. One person's sails can point to a negative space, and the winds will truly take them to a negative space. And somebody else could have that same experience. It's the same storm, the same wind, and they move to a happy port. The wind is the same. The challenge is the same. But because we're the captain of our thoughts, both from inside and with outside, internal things and external things, we can use our mind in a way that brings us to happiness. So the Navi... Elisha asks her, what is your perspective? How do you view, how do you view life? She responds, I view things wholesomely in a positive way. And because she viewed it as such, that was the reality. Martin Seligman, one of the founders of cognitive therapy, positive psychology, he has a book called Learned Helplessness. And what positive psychology and positive therapy teaches, and it's actually the most successful in the field of therapy today, this uh, school, cognitive therapy, 
the thesis is very simple, that the mind, cog- our cognition, the way we view things, changes reality, and every person is in control of their mind. So, for instance, where Freud and many, many others, beginning with Freud, focused very much on inner demons and dark forces and subconscious that control us, and to a great extent we are victims of things that happen to us, or unconscious drives, subconscious, psychosis, neurosis, charosis, all Jewish things. That, that viewpoint was very much, although there's truth to it, but that way of viewing things made a person very much victim to circumstance. What cognitive therapy focuses on, that we are the captain of our thoughts and everybody could become more optimistic. So he has a wonderful book called Learned Helplessness, where a person can learn to be helpless or learned optimism. And in this book, there are many wonderful scientific experiments that very powerfully illustrate this notion of that the positive thought process changes health, happiness, work, relationships. I'll give you one very interesting illustration from the book, which was done with, with the full rigor of scientific experiment, and they put money and research into it. And if you look into the book, you'll see all the documentation of it. Martin Seligman and his team, he's a professor at uh, Penn, they went to a business where a person experiences a lot of negativity and rejection, sales. So let's go to a business where people experience a lot of negativity and rejection. So they went to, at the time of the book, they went to the largest life insurance company in America. It was called Metropolitan Life. Metropolitan Life, at that time it was the largest company, it still may be. They went to Metropolitan Life, this research team, and they wanted a partner in terms of research, and the Metropolitan Life said, fine. So Seligman and his team said, let us look at the tests that you give to the people you hire. How do you choose who to hire? And they showed Seligman the tests. And the tests were basically based on a people's IQ and their background, their, where they were educated, their you know, cognitive aptitude. That's what it was, an IQ test, essentially. So Seligman said, okay. What we want to do is we want to create a new test. And the new test is not based on a person's education or how, what kind of IQ they have. We want to create a test that's going to measure people's optimism and pessimism. How do they view, view, view uh, rejection? Do they view it as an expression of who they are and their personal failure? Or do they have a healthy approach to rejection and they rebound from it and they view it as a growing experience? So they created a whole new test that had nothing to do with IQ, but more on the positive personality or a negative personality. And then they said, let us see all the people that took your tests last two years or three years that you did not hire because the IQ was not to the level you wanted. And let us administer the new test. And they did that. And then they hired a bunch of people who failed the cognitive test, but scored high on the personality test in terms of positive personality and viewpoint. And then they took this team that they hired that originally failed and they put them against the the salespeople that had the highest IQ. So here you had a whole group of people that were hired who were initially not hired because of one test. 
and now we're hired because they had a different viewpoint. They just viewed things differently. That was their, uh, it wasn't education, it wasn't their intellect. The first year, after monitoring the results of both teams, they sold 22%. The people with less cognitive ability sold 22% more than their peers with greater intellect and greater education. And what's astonishing is in year two, they outsold them by 57%. 57%. And Selwyn writes, they say they, they weren't expecting that much, but he says it's very simple. In sales, if you don't have a good attitude, every day you're getting no, no, no. So it accumulates. After two years, you've got a lot of no's, a lot of rejection. If you don't know how to respond to that, you're going to get worse. But if you view it as a growth possibility and you rebound from it, then you actually grow and become better. And that is true in life. In life, as one goes through the years, it's easier to say, this dream is gone, and who I will be is gone, and so forth. It's easy to become pessimistic. But the challenge is to be able to view something in a positive way, and it changes our emotions, our relationships, everything. The second question Alicia asks is, Hashalom li'ishach, how do you view your spouse? Hashalom li'ishach. Every, you know, there's these interesting songs, love means you don't have to say you're sorry, all these kind of moronic, silly statements. The person you hurt most is your roommate. It could be even unintentionally. But the person who you're around most, you hurt most, you actually have to say you're sorry to most. When you live with somebody, you're very much aware of their faults and the differences, very much. So it's very easy to look at a spouse and look at what is negative in them. So just like it's... It changes a person's life if you view reality in a positive way. It changes the person you're with very much in how you view them. Do you look at your spouse, your husband or your wife or somebody close to you, and do you always harp on the negative? Or do you look at them and thank God for the wonderful things, for the beauty, for what is good, and bring that positivity out of them? was the second. How do you view your relationships? That was the second question. How do you view your husband in that case? How do you view your spouse? There was an elderly man. He was arrested for shoplifting. So he's in front of the judge. The judge says, what did you steal? He said, a can of peaches. He said, why did you steal peaches? He said, I stole peaches. I was hungry. I didn't have my wallet. I thought I wouldn't get caught. So I, I stole them and I ate them. You know, it was good. Just how many peaches were in the can? So he says, there were six. So the judge says, okay, you're going to have six months in prison for that. So the wife is there. She's in the courthouse. She stands up. She says, your honor, may I share something? So he says, certainly. What would you like to add? She says, I would like to let you know my husband also stole a can of beans. <laughs> so you can look at her. Relationships could be very challenging, but the question is, do you look at what is beautiful or do you harp on what is negative? You all know, if you all saw a traditional Jewish wedding, firsthand or on a film, how does a traditional Jewish wedding end? It ends with the groom breaks a glass. And what happens when he breaks the glass? What does everybody do? Mazel tov. Why do we break the glass? The gl- huh? The, the glass... What? What? The base Hamikdash, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
in, in, the, in our tradition, it says something very beautiful. It actually says that at a wedding, we remember... We remember Yerushalayim. We always remember, even at the great joyous moment, that the temple in Jerusalem, the Beis Hamikdash, is destroyed. It's shattered. In other words, even when we're having a very beautiful and joyous moment in life, when we're blessed, we have to remember redemption is not here. The world is not all fixed. Things are shattered in life. The temple shattered. People's hearts are shattered. We have to remember that even when we're blessed. We have to remember we have responsibilities to a heart that is shattered. It's a very beautiful spiritual idea. That's, and so we remember that. Even a happy moment, there's things in the world that are shattered that we need to help. So a beautiful moral idea. Okay. Why do we shout Mazel Tov? It's very odd. You break the glass, so it's a nice... Why does everybody... Sh- the breaking of the glass is symbolic of the shattered Jerusalem, of the Churban, of things that are shattered, shattered hearts, shattered holiness. So by a wedding, you break the glass and everybody says, Mazel Tov. It's very bizarre. Shouldn't say Mazel Tov. Under the chuppah, you look at the groom and bride, perfection, wonderful, it looks perfect. But what's going to happen? What's going to happen in a day or two, a week or month? The groom's going to break a few things. It's not always perfect. Things break. No, it's perfect. Not just glass dishes. Things break. People make mistakes and things shatter in life. Your spouse, whoever one is married to, you're going to find imperfections with your spouse. They're going to break things. Sometimes often. Sometimes on a daily basis. What do you do when your spouse breaks something? What do you do? Mazel tov. You say mazel tov. You learn how to celebrate. Something negative happens. The Jewish tradition is, say mazel tov. Thank God. First of all, thank God you married somebody that's also per- not perfect like you. Imagine being married to somebody perfect. It would be horrible. Uh, probably. You say mazel tov. In other words, there's a deep thing here. Learn how to celebrate something small, something broke, something small. Learn how to celebrate when small things break. When th- learn how to celebrate and find some positive element, even when something's not so good. And if you learn how to do that, that does bring mazel into one's life. That does bring, that makes, then the big things don't break. So the notion is, and you have actually in Jewish homes, there is a tradition that sometimes if somebody spills something on the table or a, a glass breaks, people say mazel tov. But uh, have you seen that kind of uh, mazel tov? That, that, that's the notion. In other words, you can look at something and find negative, or you could find what is positive. There was a, uh, uh, a wealthy individual who helped build a Chabad uh, Jewish center in Springfield, Massachusetts. Kimball, he was a lawyer. Jerry. Jeffrey. Uh-oh, is he here? Jeffrey, that's right. There is, uh, well, and he was very into uh, making sure it looked presentable and beautiful, and he invested his time and resources. So one uh, spring day, he drives by with his wife and daughter. They're going to somewhere. He passes by this Jewish center, and he's very unimpressed. There is weeds, and the, the manicured lawn is not the way it ought to be. And it's disheveled looking, and he is very upset because this is not the way he envisioned it, and it's not uh, what he invested in. And the rabbi <laughs> was strolling in front of the Jewish center, so he hops out of the car to have a word with this rabbi. He's gonna have, a... and the daughter is looking with, is sitting with the mom in the car, and he never, she never saw her father speak to the rabbi in this uh, passionate way. So she says, "Mommy, what's going on over here? Why is Daddy yelling at the rabbi?" 
So the mother tells to the daughter, hey, do you see the flowers and the roses? So the daughter says, yes, I see them. She says, do you see the weeds and the thorns? So the daughter says, yes, I see the weeds too. So the mother says, the rabbi only sees the flowers. So that's a good description of a Jew generally. But in life, if we are looking for the thorns and the weeds in our spouse, in ourselves, in our environment, they'll always be there. In an unredeemed world, they're always there. But the question is, how do we view the garden around us? How do we view our spouse? Do we see the flowers or do we focus on the weeds? In ourselves and in others. And if we focus on what is beautiful and we zero in on that, then that's the way it becomes. Now, by the way, what's very powerful is, even if one is not in an optimistic mood, and let's say we wake up and we're feeling negative and down about ourselves, a spouse, a child, so you say, okay, if I'm in an upbeat mood and I have the energy to dance and celebrate and think positive, and okay, that's one thing, but what happens if we just don't feel it? I feel negative, I don't feel positive, I need to be honest. I'm not Zusha, I can't dance. I'm not King David who's going to start taking the insult and turn it into a compliment. I'm not Walter and Grace that are going to be happy about a disturbed sleep. I'm a kvetch. I don't feel happy, so I should pretend I'm happy. It's a realistic question. What do you do then? So in Jewish thoughts and in psychology as well, there's a great emphasis even when a person feels negative and doesn't feel optimistic, you still could change it. It's very easy. And here's, I'll give you a, a wonderful, true illustration of it. Rabbi, Dr. Abraham Tversky tells the story when he was a child. So he's probably in his, about his 90s now, a therapist and an author. But when he was a child, living, so he said it was World War II. He was a child. His family and his dad and his mom were close to another family, and their only child got drafted. A few months into the war, the family is notified that their only child is missing. They were devastated. Their only child, and it was a terrible war, World War II, and the family. So my father, Dr. Twersky says, once a week I would go with my father, not always, but often I would go, to that home, my father would go every week and he would walk in with an optimistic mood in a happy way and he would tell the parents of this missing child missing in action doesn't mean gone, it doesn't mean dead you have no right to live as if your child is killed that does nothing positive he is alive, he's going to return, you have to be positive, you have to be happy. And he would sit there for a half hour, an hour, and pump them up and be positive. He would not entertain the notion of any misfortune. And they would actually wait the whole week for my father to come and talk. And this was the highlight of the week. Two years passed, two years. The war ended. And shortly after the war ended, the family was notified that their child was indeed a captive. He was fine and he was being released. When their child went back to the base, to the American base, he had close to a hundred letters that were not opened. And he opened up the letters and every one of them was from Tversky's father. A hundred letters. 
Now, Tversky says something extraordinary. He says, I know exactly when my father wrote every single one of the hundred letters. Know when it was? Before my father would go to this house once a week, for two years he went, my father himself was a person who knew the reality of war. He knew what was going on. He knew the bloodbath that was happening in Europe. And he himself didn't know if the child was alive. He feared the child may have been dead. But he figured, what am I going to do? I'm going to go to the home and be gloomy and say, oh, yeah, your child's dead. That, that's not what they need. Pessimism pinches the soul. It destroys a person. It will destroy the relationship. So he said, Tversky said, my father needed to change his own mood because he didn't feel upbeat. So my father would sit down and he would start writing to this boy that he knew. He would say, how are you? How's it going? What, what, what happened in the last week? And as my father would start writing the letter to this kid, in his own heart and mind, he would start to feel that the kid's alive because he was writing a letter to him. And as soon as my father would get the feeling, oh, I'm communicating with somebody's alive, he would end the letter and then he would go. So I know when my father wrote any, every one of those letters, he did it every week right before he went. And that family told Tversky that that was the only way they made it through those two years because of his father. So a person does not have to be, wake up and say, oh, wonderful mood, I'm such a happy person. Do the acts, smile, write the letter, do the thing that changes our feeling. Actions itself, whatever the actions may be, could uh, change the way we feel, change the inner perspective of a person. And the third question was, how is your child? How do you view a child? You can look at a child and always find their flaws. That's possible. Right? What's the, finish the sentence. I caught my child doing... What comes next? A mitzvah or a sin? Anybody ever caught their child doing a mitzvah? We don't even use talk that way. Oh, I caught my child doing such a mitzvah. It's never. It's always a, why are we always catching our child doing something wrong? Why? That's just an expression of harping on the weeds, on the thorns. We need to view our child and find what is, what is their talent? What do they do right? And when we catch our child doing a mitzvah and we praise them for it, the child says, hey, that felt good. I want to get caught doing a mitzvah tomorrow. And then they do that again. So that was the prophet's question. How do you view your child? How do you view your grandchild? You want to find the negative? Certainly you'll find the negative. But can you view, find what is beautiful in them and praise that, talk about it? And then that becomes reality. In Ethics of Our Fathers is a beautiful passage. It says... Rabbi Yechelen ben Zakkai, one of the great sages of the first century, he's had five outstanding disciples who became leaders of the Jewish people in the next generation. Chamishet Hamidim Hayoli Rabbi Yechelen ben Zakkai had five disciples. And then it says, And he would talk about what was wonderful with each one of them, often. And he would often recount their praise. And he would say, this one has an excellent memory, and this one great creativity, and this one is pious. The ethics in the Mishnah, it talks about the five students, and what praise he would say often about each one. And the commentaries say this is a very strange Mishnah. Mishnah is Jewish law. This has no place in Jewish law. Complimenting students, what each student's capacity was. It should be a, it's a piece of history. It's a nice story. Why is it in a Mishnah? And the powerful answer is because this is Jewish law. How 
did Rabbi Yechran ben Zakkai, this great teacher, manage to raise five extraordinary sages that led the Jewish people in a very dark time? Because the law is, because he would recount their praise. He looked at each one of them and he said, You are Kemayin Hamisgaber, you are creative. Use your creativity. And because he sang their praise, every day they would wake up and say, How can I be more creative? And to another one, he said, You are Bar Ma'abitipa. You have a phenomenal memory. You, your memory can contain. And because he sang their praise, he, he didn't say, Oh, A student, wonderful, good job. It wasn't generic. He focused on their praise, on what was beautiful. And because he spoke about it and focused in on it, then that's, that's who they became. And so this question that Alicia asks the woman, says the Alter Rebbe, is a question that really we face every day. Those three questions. Hashalim lach. How do we view reality? How do we view the events in our life? Do we look at them positively? Do we say shalom? Do we say, I'm going to look at it beautifully, and if I look at something positively, reality will change for me? How do I view my spouse? How do I view my child? Those are three questions that we're really asked every single day. And if we can answer shalom, I view them in a positive way, then our life changes, our home changes, and the life of our children change as well. Thank you very much.